Ted, Ted, would you look at all the stars? Oh, I love lying in bed, watching them twinkle. They're small because they're far away, you say. Dougal! Oh, the sun's swallowing the stars! No, it's midday, Dougal. You've overslept again. You just need some new curtains. The moths have been at these... Midday? My new podcast song. Uh, now, Dougal, what's the podcast? The Jodcast. Well, that'll be a show in a small downloadable file, normally an MP3. Would you like some tea, Father? I sent an email to them last week. I want to see if they got it. <laughs> now, Dougal, there is no internet on Craggy Island. Everyone knows that. I know. I sent it by pigeon. I'll get that for us. I'll leave the tea here for you, because you do want some, don't you? Well, then, we might as well have some tea. Sky, Moon, Neil deGrasse Tyson. What's Father Jack doing in the teapot? No idea, Ted. Pigeon for you, Father Dougal. And I brought some more tea. Oh, it's my Jodcast. Listen, Ted, listen. The Jodcast. Everyone's a Captain Kirk. With Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast. November 2010 edition. And welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta, and joining me today are Adam Averson and Libby Jones. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And we have finally got another member of the Jogcast back from the void. Adam has submitted his thesis, so Ooh. congratulations. Thank you. And you want to tell us a bit about what you're doing now? I just started literally today working for the Alma Regional Centre here in Manchester. So you're going to be around for a couple more years? Yeah, and a couple more years. We've got our hooks into you now with the Jogcast, so you're never yeah, leaving. Yeah, I should, I should be around and available to do bits and pieces. Cool. So if you're wondering about the witty comment, uh, that's apparently a line from the English translation of 99 Red Balloons, and it's our 99th audio episode. Um, I didn't really realise that Captain Kirk was mentioned in that song. I can't remember it from the German version. But... No, so if anyone knows whether this is a lie, whether the internet's been lying to us, please get in touch and let us know. Uh, in the show this time, we learn about the interior of the sun and we find out what you can see in the night sky in November. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, results from Elcross, a record-breaking galaxy, and high-mass pulsars. Small lumps of rock hit the moon quite regularly, but in 2009, two artificial projectiles impacted on the lunar surface in an experiment designed to search for water in the permanent shadows of a crater near the lunar south pole. Hints of subsurface water on the moon had already been found in 1999, when NASA's Lunar Prospector spacecraft detected signatures of concentrated hydrogen, the H in H2O, near the lunar poles. The Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, or LCROSS, was a low-cost mission launched together with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in June 2009. The mission consisted of the Centaur upper stage of the Atlas V launch vehicle and a shepherding spacecraft equipped with various cameras and sensors. Moving at a speed of 1.5 miles per second, the Centaur stage impacted the lunar surface on October 9, 2009, sending up a plume of material from the permanently shadowed floor of the crater Cabeus. The Elcross spacecraft observed the impact before flying through the plume to impact the same surface some four minutes later. In the October 22nd issue of Science magazine, several teams working on data from the impact published their findings. Cabeus Crater was chosen for the experiment as it contains an area which is permanently in shadow, 
due to its location close to the lunar south pole. The low temperatures, combined with the movement of soil, or regolith, by micrometeorite impacts, known as impact gardening, which buries accumulated material, making such craters ideal places to search for volatiles, chemicals which are solid only at very low temperatures. Previous results from a neutron spectrometer aboard the Lunar Prospector spacecraft suggested that ice could make up between half and one percent of the soil near the lunar poles, and further results from a neutron detector on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter showed a strong hydrogen signal, originally thought to be from water ice. But observations of the L-cross plume, made with another instrument called LAMP, an ultraviolet spectrograph on board the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, showed that as much of the hydrogen signal comes from molecular hydrogen as it does from water. Water is thought to have accumulated from cometary impacts, distributing water across the lunar surface in the ejector, but it is far from certain where the molecular hydrogen originated. The results from the nine instruments on board the Elcross Shepherding spacecraft, reported in Science on October 22nd, show signatures of numerous different chemicals, including water vapour, water ice, and hydroxyl radicals, a common result of the breaking up of water molecules. Using the spectra obtained, the Elcross team calculated that the maximum amount of water vapour and ice visible in the field of view of the instruments was 155 kilograms. By estimating the amount of material that was excavated by the Centaur impact and became observable by reaching sunlight, they calculated that the concentration of water in the lunar regolith at the impact site was 5.6%. They also found that the observed abundances of other volatile compounds, such as ammonia, sulfur dioxide and carbon monoxide, were far higher than the abundances found in comets, suggesting that molecular formation may be going on in these shadowed regions on the surfaces of cold dust grains. The most distant object in the known universe is a highly luminous gamma-ray burst, a single explosion discovered near maximum light at a redshift of 8.2, a time when the universe was only 630 million years old, less than 5% of its current age. The most distant known galaxy lies at a redshift of 6.96. The light we see now left the galaxy just 750 million years after the Big Bang. However, both these records have now been broken by a galaxy discovered by the Hubble Space Telescope, which has a redshift of 8.56, and an estimated distance of 87 gigaparsecs, making it the most distant object currently known. First seen in the Hubble Ultra-Deep Field, the deepest single image ever taken in near-infrared light, the galaxy, known as UDFY-3813539, was initially classified as a candidate high-redshift object, based on its colours. Now, a team led by Matthew Lennart at the Observatoire de Paris in France has used spectroscopic observations to confirm that the object is the most distant galaxy so far detected. Since the universe is expanding, the further away an object is, the faster it appears to be moving away from us. This results in a shift in wavelength of the light emitted from an object, known as redshift, with the size of the shift relating to the distance between us and the object. This is similar to the shift in pitch you hear when a police car travels past at high speed. This effect allows distances to be calculated by measuring the shift in spectral lines from known chemicals. Lennart's team used a sensitive spectrograph on the Very Large Telescope, located in Chile, to observe the spectrum of this galaxy, and found an emission line which is likely to be caused by hydrogen, shifted to redder wavelengths by the relative motion between the galaxy and us. This is an exciting discovery, because it is the first galaxy discovered in the so-called Epoch of Reionization, the period in the history of the universe where the neutral material between the newly formed galaxies was being ionised, the light from young hot stars stripped electrons from hydrogen atoms.
The authors used the measured light from the galaxy to calculate the size of the region of the surrounding gas, which the galaxy should have been able to ionise on its own, and found that, in order to explain the size of the ionised bubble which is consistent with the observations, there must be other sources of radiation. One suggestion is that dwarf galaxies clustering around larger, more easily observed galaxies may be responsible for this additional radiation, but there are other explanations. While observations such as these are difficult with current ground-based telescopes due to the faint nature of these distant sources, the planned next generation of larger and more sensitive ground and space-based instruments should make observations of such sources much easier. Left over from the supernova explosions of massive stars, neutron stars are incredibly dense and compact objects, but very little is known about their internal structure. Pulsars, spinning neutron stars with powerful jets of radio emission, which act something like cosmic lighthouses, are useful probes of extreme physics, such as general relativity, and forms of matter so dense that investigating them in laboratories on the Earth is extremely difficult. Various models of the internal structure of a neutron star have been proposed, including various exotic forms of matter, but determining which is closest to reality requires knowledge of the distribution of masses and radii, measurements which require careful observations and depend to some extent on the exact models and assumptions used. Reported in Nature on the 28th of October, a team of astronomers using the Green Bank Radio Telescope in the US have discovered a pulsar with a mass twice that of the Sun. These new results have implications not only for our understanding of neutron stars and their formation, but also for our understanding of nuclear physics and matter at very high densities, and suggest that many of the theoretical models of neutron star structure can now be ruled out. Led by Paul Demarest of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in the US, the astronomers observed the binary millisecond pulsar J1614-2230, a pulsar orbiting a white dwarf in a binary system which lies almost edge-on to our line of sight. This geometry was vital, allowing the astronomers to make use of an effect known as the Shapiro delay, an effect of general relativity. This is the delay of a signal caused as it moves through the gravitational field of the white dwarf companion, a delay which is a maximum when the pulsar lies on the far side of its orbit relative to the Earth. This effect allowed the mass of both the neutron star and its white dwarf companion to be measured precisely. The neutron star was expected to have a mass of about 1.5 times that of the Sun, but the team calculated a mass of 1.97 solar masses for the neutron star, the highest mass to be accurately measured for such an object. Combining this mass measurement with the predictions based on various different physical models allows several scenarios to be ruled out, including several exotic states of matter containing subatomic particles such as hyperons or kaons. The discovery also has implications for other astronomical events. One class of gamma-ray burst is thought to be the result of colliding neutron stars, the fact that neutron stars have now been shown to be this massive makes this a viable mechanism for these events. And finally, October saw the first public data release from the Herschel Atlas project, the largest project awarded open time on the infrared satellite. Covering an area of 16 square degrees on the sky, more than 60 times the area of the full moon, the field contains more than 6,000 galaxies imaged in five infrared bands or colours between 100 and 500 microns. The data were obtained as part of Herschel's science demonstration phase in late 2009, and the Atlas team have been working hard to process the raw images and produce catalogues of the objects detected. With so many galaxies in the field, the new data should provide much useful information to astronomers studying the evolution of galaxies over the history of the universe. Thanks for that, Megan.
And next we have Jen talking to Yvonne Ellsworth from the University of Birmingham about her research studying oscillations of the sun. I'm here with Professor Yvonne Ellsworth from the University of Birmingham. Thank you for joining us on the Jogcast today. Pleasure. So you work on studying the sun and the inside of the sun. I thought maybe we would start off with a simple question of why is the sun interesting? Okay, where do you want me to start on this question? As an astronomical object, the sun is interesting. You could call this blue skies research, because you need nice blue skies to see the sun and not the clouds. But it it is interesting as a body in its own right um, for fundamental reasons. And that's got to be one of the very basic justifications of doing science, doing astronomy. However, the sun is interesting from um, a personal point of view, because I am interested in living on the Earth, and the um, Earth life on Earth is governed by uh, the heat light we get from the sun, and also the other radiation we get from the sun. So understanding our local environment is pretty important to us. It's also interesting because uh, it's close, and we can make very detailed measurements on it, and people have made measurements over a variety of different wavelengths for a very long time, and it's used as a paradigm, as a sort of Rosetta Stone, on which we base a lot of other astrophysics. Astrophysics that you wouldn't necessarily think that the sun had any relevance to. But actually, we test the ideas by testing them to destruction on the sun to great precision, and then use them, extrapolate them, to work on very different sorts of objects. So on very many different um, approaches, different standpoints, um, the sun is a crucial object. And your research is helioseismology. So you study the interior of the sun. A lot of people do work on the surface, but you're studying inside. So could you explain how you do that? We do helio and astroseismology, which is the study of stars by similar techniques. So seismology means vibrations. So unexpectedly, um, it's been discovered that the sun gently pulsates due to sound waves traveling inside it. Um, these pulsations are seen on the surface, so what I observe is the surface, because that's all I can actually see, but I am understanding that what I see is just a sound waves traveling inside it. And because um, I get a diversity of sound waves, and they're resonant, so they're seeing the sun as a resonant body, like a musical instrument, um, because there's a whole range of different modes of oscillation, then I can image the interior. So when you say resonances, is this like, say I, I play the flute, so if I play an A note and then I blow harder, I get a higher A note. Is that what we're talking about here? It's a very nice analogy. I can give you a slightly different one, which is I use A, um, but what I often say to people is um, if someone plays an A on, I'll take a flute, and plays it on a piano, can you tell that it was played on a piano or on a flute? And the answer is yes, of course. But it's A, for heaven's sake, A is A. How do you know? Well, you know because of the quality of the note, because you don't get a pure note from it, you get overtones. And the overtone structure, and as you say, blowing harder changes things, um, tells you something about what produced the sound. So for the sun, I don't have a single pure note, which will be useful but limited. What I have is a complete range of notes. And from that complexity, I can image. And what kind of things do we get from these resonances? What does this tell you about the sun? 
Well, the very basic idea is simple classical physics. If you measure a frequency of a wave, well, you're sort of measuring its period, and that tells you how fast, if you know how big the body is, it tells you how fast the sound wave is travelling through it. So I'm measuring the speed of sound. So fundamentally, I'm getting a measure of the distribution of the speed of sound through the interior of the sun. That depends on temperature, um, mass, but also on... Um, the distribution of them. So what people do is they take what we observe, which is the frequencies, and then compare them with models that predict what the frequencies are. And those models have physics in them. And you can then test how close the models get to reality, what we observe. And in doing so, you can tune the physics. I guess an analogy we could use is how we know what inside the earth because of how earthquake waves propagate through the earth so can you go as far in the sun as saying what materials are inside it or is it just temperatures and things like that okay um to start with your first point you can use it um so we know about the core of the earth because certain waves don't propagate through it actually we know it's liquid and that comes from large earthquakes so they're unusual what we're talking about in the sun is the constant seismic background that comes from a noisy, turbulent, convective environment. It's that constant nudging that happens that is what we're measuring. Now, the Earth has a hum, actually, so um, you can listen to the hum of the Earth, but what we're really interested in is the hum of the sun. The sound speed depends on temperature, but also depends on what material's there. But once you get away from the convection zone, where obviously uh, there's hydrogen and helium, which is what the sun's mostly made of, um, so inside that zone, you have you have just essentially hydrogen and helium and very small amounts and not very significant amounts of other elements. At the simple level, we know what the sun is made of. It's the subtleties in terms of the precise fractions that are there that are actually very interesting. So it's small constituents that we're interested in. And the amount of material other than hydrogen and helium is known as the metallicity for obscure reasons. Solar metallicity is taken as the paradigm against which all other metallicities are quoted. So if we change what we believe solar metallicity to be, then we're changing an awful lot of stellar physics and stars are part of galaxies and how you form stars in the early universe depends on you know, what sort of stars and what sort of materials you've got. So there's huge ramifications. But um, it's really the data um, give you something against which you set your models. And into your models, you put different amounts of different elements. Um, or you put what people measure on the surface and make assumptions about what might be in the interior. So it's a lovely subject where you can very clearly set theory um, I was going to say against, but that's not right. Theory in comparison with observation, and one tensions the other. It's not a subject where um, the theory is all proposed and all you need to do is run an experiment and we'll prove the theory. It just isn't like that, and you can't run experiments. You have to take what nature throws at you when you do astronomy. I'd like to go back a step. You mentioned the convection zone, so maybe we should just refresh our memories on what convection is and what the convection zone within the sun is. The sun has nuclear reactions in the core where the temperature is very high, enough that the nuclear reactions happen. And then outside that you get a quiet zone where radiation gently moves through. 
But then you eventually get to conditions where if a particle of gas starts to move, it'll keep moving. It won't just come back to where it started. You get serious large-scale motion. And this process is convection. So it's the bubbling that you get when the kettle boils. And if you think about boiling a kettle, it's noisy. You can hear that the kettle is coming to the boil. And the same process happens in the sun. You get convection, turbulence, a turnover, and the noise, the pressure wave associated with that is what drives our oscillations. So can we move on now to the instruments that you actually use to measure these oscillations? We are measuring a Doppler shift. So we're measuring the fact that um, the surface of the sun is moving very slightly with respect to a ground-based observer. Um, I have to be very careful here because I get totally Earth-centered, and as far as I'm concerned, the sun is moving, but I know that's not reality. (laughs) Um, So we measure the position of features in the solar spectrum, and we actually use a potassium line, which is at about 770 nanometers, so in the far red, not quite visible. Uh, And we very, very precisely measure where that line is. And small motions of it are due to the surface motion on the sun. And that's basically what we measure day in, day out, week in, week out. Every 40 seconds, we have a measure of that. Do you have to get time on telescopes to do this? Or do you have your own dedicated telescopes to do your research with? Uh, We have our own dedicated telescopes. There are reasons for this. One is you never get the time because we... We don't want the sun to set. <laughs> okay. Uh, and you can't do that. So the only solution is to have a series of, of observatories around the world. Our instrument is also very specialist, but requires a tiny, tiny aperture. Our typical a- aperture is two inches, five centimeters. Okay. So, you know, don't, don't give me, you know, an eight meter class telescope and <laughs> blow the instrumentation to pieces, uh, because the sun's awfully bright. Um, So there is no need for a big telescope, but what you do need is dedicated telescopes and um, continuous coverage around the globe. So we have six of them. It's a network known as Bison. It's based around amateur-type domes, um, 12-foot, being American, measured in feet, 12-foot diameter domes with homemade instrumentation or bought-in equipment, but it's, it's relatively simple and relatively cheap but very sophisticated. A question that just popped into my head then, if someone, if there's an amateur out there who wants to help out, is there a way that they can do that? Or is the, are the instruments, do they become too sophisticated to actually be done by an amateur? Um, it's not really something that an amateur could do. It's not that it's incredibly difficult to do, but um, it, it's a matter of keeping things running and, and working with the precision. So it, and, and also be fairly boring because <laughs> uh, from any one day of data, you get nothing. Okay, you get the fact that the sun's oscillating, and that's really exciting to see, and we demonstrate this when we do um, public understanding work. You can show traces of there's the vibrations of the sun. But it's... The continuity, it's getting a year's worth of data from six sites, nearly continuous, continuous coverage. That, that's where the science comes, not from a short-term measurement. So it's very different from, say, going out and measuring the brightness of a variable star. That's an important measurement and an important point and where amateurs can contribute hugely as well as having fun. Um, just measuring four hours worth of solar oscillations doesn't hack it. <laughs> So you talked about having to have years of data. How many years of data do you have? 
Our very earliest data comes from about 1975. So that's a long, long time ago. Uh, we only have sort of six weeks at a time from that, and only from one site, so a few hours a day. Uh, we then realized that we needed more sites and went to the stage of having two sites, one in the Canary Islands, one in the Hawaiian Islands, which are 10 hours apart in longitude. So that gives you almost continuous coverage in the summertime, but not in the winter. Uh, and from there, we progressed to having six sites. We no longer are in the Hawaiian Islands, very sadly, <laughs> but we are distributed around the world in North and Southern Hemisphere so that we potentially and often do get 100% coverage in a day. A lot of people study the surface of the sun as well. So do you see that, say, the solar cycle, does that affect what happens in the interior? Does Maybe if there's like solar flares or something, are they triggered by the interior or anything like that, or is it just too difficult to tell? There's several answers to that. <laughs> um, the presence of activity on the surface of the sun changes the frequency of the oscillations. Okay. What it does is alter the sound travel time by about one second in the 6,000 or so that it takes to go through. However, whether a flare influences the oscillations is interesting. <laughs> what it has been shown to do is uh, influence um, some of the oscillations locally, not the ones actually that we observe, but ones if you look at a small patch on the sun. There are occasions where there's been big flares and people can see a ring moving away from it. Okay. We have searched for and failed to find any statistical correlation between when we see a particularly big event in the solar oscillations and when we see a big flare. That doesn't mean that there might not occasionally be something, but it's hard to see um, how even quite a big flare impacts on the whole global sun. And you have to remember that the oscillations, because they are resonating with the whole, the ones we observe are resonating with the whole volume of the sun, how much energy is in that compared to the energy in a flare. And it's not, the energy in the flare is less significant than you might think. One thing I probably should have asked you earlier is how long, do the, how long are the, the periods of these oscillations? The sun vibrates gently with a five-minute period and an amplitude, well, integrated amplitude of a few metres per second. So it's a nice, slow walking pace. So you talked about astro-seismology as well, so doing these kind of studies on other stars. Um, how does the sun link in with this? And are you able, I guess you can't do as detailed studies on other stars as you can on the sun. With other stars, you're stuck with putting, uh, with a single detector, mostly, and there are ways of imaging the surface, but it's it's more complicated. So in, in general, it's fair to say that you have a single detector. So what you measure is the same as Birmingham Group would measure on the sun. We don't, we don't image the surface of the sun, and we don't image the surface of stars. Uh, however, it tend, the work tends to be profitably done from above the atmosphere. So we are, we don't produce the data. We analyze it, we interpret it, uh, but we take data. Currently, actually, there's um, a very good French satellite called Coro and a very good American mission, um, called Kepler, both of which has, have as important aims, um, the detection of planets, Earth sized planets in particular around other stars. But astroseismology tells you about the host stars, so that's why we get the data. And, I mean, I know with Kepler that all the data's embargoed, so how did you get around that? Uh, some people were very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you had to promise not to find a planet. 
And we had to promise that any planets we found, we would give back. (laughs) Well, I think that's it. Thank you very much for talking to us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for that, Jen. At the end of that interview, there was some discussion of Kepler data, but you didn't really get into much detail. But since then, the paper containing that data has been released. Here's Libby with more. Kepler has been a US mission to look at extrasolar planets in the nearby universe. And while one man's junk is another man's data, so a consortium of European astronomers have uh, got the data for thousands of stars of red giants in the nearby universe and measured the periods of stellar oscillations. And you can actually listen to this red giant oscillation symphony you can, online. Wait, 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 wait. Wait a sec. You can listen to it. Yes, you can listen to Daniel Hubert's red giant oscillation symphony online. Wow, we'll have to link to that in the show notes. So. We'll, we'll definitely get on there. I can't <laughs> wait to sort of listen to some of these red giant oscillations. It'd be quite cool. Um, and while these stars that they're measuring are all at different evolutionary stages, and at the moment it's confirming the predictions of stellar evolution, uh, which is all well and good, so we know what's going to happen to our star, the Sun, in the future. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it's good, good work going on there, and I really want to check out this symphony online. <laughs> and talking of stars, here is Ian Morrison to tell you what you can see in the northern night sky in November. The night sky, November 2010. At the beginning of last month's night sky, I recommended a book by Brother Guy, the Pope's astronomer, called Turn Left at Orion. And it was very nice to receive an email just the other day thanking me for that and saying they'd bought it and found it very useful. And I was asked if I could perhaps recommend some other books. So perhaps at the start of each of these little talks, I'll say something about a book that I like to use myself. And this month, I'd like to recommend a book written by Stephen James O'Meara, who I suspect is one of the best visual observers in the world today. He lives at Volcano on Big Island, Hawaii, nice and high and very dark. And he can see with a little four-inch telescope things it takes me something like an eight-inch telescope to see from my home in England. He's written a series called The Deep Sky Companions. And the one I want to recommend this month is called The Messier Objects. The Messier Objects, obviously after Charles Messier, who made this wonderful catalogue of interesting objects in the sky. And it's published by Cambridge University Press. And it goes through all the hundred or so Messier objects. It gives you drawings of what he can see with his telescope, tells you everything there is to know about it. So it is a wonderful companion to sit and plan your observations, perhaps on a cloudy night or while you're waiting for the sky to get dark. So there we go. Stephen James O'Meara, The Messier Objects. Well, it's a very interesting skyscape after dark and as the evening progresses at this time of year. First of all, setting over in the west, we have the sort of the summer triangle of stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, in their constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. And that's something we've been seeing throughout the summer months, but as the nights draw in, it's still there soon after sunset. Coming over towards the south, we have the great square of Pegasus, Pegasus the winged horse, upside down as we see it. Up to its left, you have the constellation of Andromeda with our nearby galaxy M31, the Andromeda galaxy, and I'll come back to that in the highlights. High overhead is the W of Cassiopeia, and working down towards the east, we have the constellation of Perseus. In between the two, 
if you search from Cassiopeia down towards Perseus with binoculars, and even if it's very dark just with your eyes, you'll see a little faint misty glow. And a small telescope will actually show that these are two lovely star clusters. They're called the Double Cluster in Perseus, and a beautiful sight. I've been lucky enough to acquire a 12-inch telescope in the last year, and the view I had of that from a very dark sight, in fact, um, in the Cotswolds, was absolutely breathtaking. Little stars speckled across the field of view in a wonderful way. So do look out for the double cluster in Perseus. Now, what begins to happen later on in the evening at this time of year is that the lovely winter constellations begin to become apparent. First of all, even soon after dusk, you can actually see part of the constellation of Taurus the Bull. The head of the bull has an eye made up of the bright star Aldebaran, and it forms a V, and the stars in the rest of the V are called the Hyades Cluster. In fact, Aldebaran's nothing to do with the Hyades Cluster. It just happens to be in between it and us. But up to the right of the Hyades Cluster is the rather beautiful little group of stars known as the Pleiades Clusters, or the, or, or the Seven Sisters. And those with keen eyesight can actually make out some of the individual stars, but binoculars or a small telescope will show them as a very little beautiful set of stars, one of the lovely objects to look at in the autumn and winter sky. And as the night goes on, Orion will be rising in the southeast with its red star Betelgeuse up to the upper left and down to the lower right, the bluish giant called Rigel. So there's quite a lot to look forward to and some lovely stars and areas of the sky to see during these early winter months. Well, what about the planets? Jupiter cannot, I think, be missed. If you look out towards the south or the southeast at the very early part of the month, you cannot fail to see Jupiter. It's the brightest object in the sky apart from the moon. Its magnitude is at minus 2.8. It's now past opposition, so it's actually moving away from us slightly, or you could say we're moving away from it. So during the month, it becomes a touch smaller and a little fainter, but hardly. And with an angular size of 45 arc seconds, a small telescope will show a wealth of detail on the surface. And it is worth looking at, because at the moment, the south equatorial belt is missing, hopefully temporarily. It's happened before. And that actually makes the great red spot rather more obvious. So if you haven't got a small telescope, it's now a good time to get one, just to have a look at Jupiter. And even with a pair of binoculars, if you can hold them steadily, you should be able to see the four Galilean moons that weave their way around Jupiter. Io, Europa, Callisto and Ganymede. Io is so close to Jupiter, it's racked by tidal forces, and the friction that results makes the interior molten. It's pot-marked with volcanoes, and we even have some pictures of active volcanoes on the surface. In complete contrast, Europa, the next outermost satellite, has an icy crust, although it does have some cracks in it due to the tidal forces. If you look close, you see the surface breaks up. It's a bit like icebergs, and we suspect there's a crust of ice overlaying an ocean of liquid water, kept warm by the tidal forces, a little bit of radiogenic heating from the core. So that's just a possible place where in our own solar system we fight, might find in the future life.
Saturn is the other planet that becomes easily visible as the month progresses. It passed behind the Sun at the end of September, so it's now a pre-dawn object, and in fact by the end of November it rises as early as 3am. But it's best to see somewhere about 6 to 7 o'clock before it gets light, and that's not too difficult these days, is it? Because really the dawn is now quite late. It's at a magnitude of plus 0.9, which is actually a bit brighter than it has been the last year or so, and that's because the ring system, which reflects quite a lot of light, is now opening out again. It went through a period when the rings were almost edge on. They're now at an angle of about 9 degrees to edge on. So they're beginning to reflect a bit more light and also make Saturn look a bit more like the planet that we're used to seeing. So a well worth object to see in the pre-dawn sky. The other planets aren't quite so good. I hesitate to mention Mercury. Certainly from our northern climes, it's going to be so low at the end of November in the southwest after sunset, we haven't got much a chance to see it. But if you do live in the southern part of Europe or even in the southern hemisphere, then you do have a chance of seeing Mercury later on in November. And Mars is much the same. It's just visible in the southwest after sunset, but you'll need binoculars, so wait until the sun has set. It actually sets about one hour after sunset. The problem is that in the evening, the ecliptic is at a very shallow angle with the horizon. So even though it's some way away from the sun, its elevation as the sun sets is still very low, makes it very hard to see. Venus, in contrast, passed in front of the sun, that's called inferior conjunction, at the end of October. But, in fact, it rapidly reappears in the pre-dawn sky, and you might even see it as soon as about the 2nd of November, about 30 minutes before sunrise. But, in fact, as you wait during the month, it gets more and more apparent. And in contrast with the evening ecliptic, the ecliptic in the morning is at a nice high angle, steep angle to the horizon, and so it rises quite rapidly into the sky. And by November the 15th, it'll have an elevation of 15 degrees by sunrise and uh, you'll see it shining with its most brightness at about magnitude minus 4.9. That's the peak of its brightness. However, interestingly, Venus stays at about the same brightness, between about minus 4 to minus 5, virtually at the whole time we see it. Now, during that time, it gets considerably closer to us and further away. When it's furthest away, it's on the far side of the Sun, and the disk is pretty well fully illuminated. When it's closest to us, there's just a very thin crescent. And it turns out that the apparent reflecting area that we see stays fairly constant, so the brightness stays constant. Well, finally, what about some of the highlights? Well, we don't have very many this month, but let's just quickly go through them. And many of you will know that November is a month when we have one of our prime meteor showers, in this case the Leonids, which peak around November the 17th and 18th because we pass close to the trails of the cometary debris from Comet Temple Tuttle. Now, sadly, this year, the moon is basically going to be at full moon just a couple of days later, and it doesn't really set on the 17th until about an hour or so before the dawn. So we don't really have a very good chance of seeing the Leonids this year. Early in the evening, and perhaps after midnight, you'll see perhaps some of the brightest of them. But the best viewing is probably just as the moon is setting over in the west. Leo will be fairly high by then 
in the east and maybe if you look in that general part of the sky and upwards from Leo you may have a chance to see them. November the 8th after sunset I hesitate a little with this one but there is a chance particularly if you don't live in the northern part of the UK and live a bit further south than we are you might be able to see a very thin crescent moon and Mars in the southwest. You'll need a really good low southwestern horizon and of course a clear night but about 20 minutes after sunset with binoculars if it's clear you should fairly easily see the very thin crescent moon and over to its right you have a chance of just picking out Mars but again it's not one of the best times to observe but it'd be nice to see a crescent moon so thin on the other hand by the end of November we have a reasonable chance of seeing two planets together in the sky Saturn and Venus now Saturn I've mentioned before and Venus I've said will be there in the morning sky Saturn is going to be close to the 2.7 magnitude double star Gamma Virginis that's called Porima and it's above the first magnitude star which is called Spica Alpha Virginis if you want to be classical however in contrast to the end of last month Saturn is now joined by minus 4.9 magnitude Venus which is slightly below and to the left of Spica. So I think that's perhaps one of the nicest skyscapes to look for this month. Just have a look in the pre-dawn sky at Saturn and Venus. And it doesn't matter too much when you try, any time towards the end of November. Well, two final things. I've been saying a little bit about the moon on my night sky page. Just Google night sky, you should get it. And this month I thought, well, why not try and teach yourself where the mare on the moon are? So I've annotated one of my pictures of the full moon showing you where the various Mare, Chrysium, Tranquillitatis, Frigoris, Humorum, Nubian, Nectarius, Fecunditatis, and so on. Some of them you can make out with your unaided eye, the man in the moon. But a pair of binoculars will easily show you these dark Mare regions. Darker because they're made of basalt-type material that's welled up from underneath the crust, the original crust, when it was impacted by massive asteroids way back in the history of our solar system. I mentioned Andromeda earlier. Perseus and Andromeda are nicely high in the south, and that gives you a very good chance, particularly when we're near New Moon, of finding the Andromeda galaxy if you haven't seen it before. Basically, you start at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus. You move one star to the left, curve right a bit to the next star, about the same distance again. At that point, turn sharp right. There's a fainter star not too far away on the right. And then just the same distance beyond that, a faint star. But also, you should find, particularly with binoculars, a fuzzy glow. And that's the core of the galaxy of Andromeda. A pair of binoculars will show much more than that. And if you can get to a really, really dark site, it's a lovely thing to see. Another way to find it is simply to take Cassiopeia, which I said was high in the southern sky, take the right hand, upper right hand, three stars that make a V, and follow that V downwards with binoculars. Again, you should come across the constellation of Andromeda. And if you're doing well, it's really dark. You might retrace your steps to that star where you turn sharp right. Go the same distance again, and you could just make out M33 in Triangulum. It's the third largest galaxy in our own Milky Way group, but much, much fainter, 
and hard to see, partly because it's at right angles to us. We see it face on, so it's not particularly bright, but well worth looking out for. So, good hunting during November. Thanks for that, Ian. And here is John Field to tell us what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere this month. With the arrival of last summer, the days get longer, but our nights become shorter. Rising in the east after sunset, we see Canis Major, Orion and Taurus. To the Greeks and Romans, these constellations form part of the great hunting scene of Orion. All three constellations appear upside down to Southern Hemisphere observers. The brightest star Sirius rises in the southeast and at 8.6 light years distance is one of the closest stars to our solar system. Sirius has a faint companion called the Pup, which is a white dwarf, the remnant of a once luminous star. Just south of Sirius is the star cluster Messier M41. This cluster of around 100 stars can be seen as a haze in the sky with the unaided eye. In binoculars, many more stars are revealed, including a number of red giants. There are 109 objects in the night sky catalogued with the prefix M. These objects are known collectively as the Messier Catalogue. Named after Charles Messier, a French astronomer who, in 1791, created a list of objects that could be mistaken as comets. As Messier lived in the Northern Hemisphere, not all the objects in his catalogue are visible to us Southern Hemisphere observers. Many Northern Hemisphere astronomical societies hold Messier marathons and see if they can observe all 109 in one night. In 1995, a catalogue was created by astronomer Sir Patrick Moore called the Coldwell Catalogue, which includes a selection of objects visible in both northern and southern hemispheres. Perhaps the most famous Messier object is M42, the great nebula in Orion. Visible as a haze above Orion's belt, M42 is the outer edge of a vast molecular cloud of interstellar dust and gas approximately 1,200 light-years away. Stars are forming in this cloud, and we can see one area where the outer part of the cloud has been blown away by strong winds from newly formed stars. In binoculars, the nebula can be seen as a bright central knot with two wing-like structures on either side. The nebula is made visible due to the intense radiation coming from a single star, Theta Orionis. This star forms part of the trapezium, a group of four bright stars in the central knot. These four, along with many others, are visible in a small telescope. To Mari, these three stars of Orion's belt were known as Totoro and made part of the bird snare, these stars forming the tree of a branch. Mari have different names and in fact different constellations formed from the same stars at different times of the year, associating them with seasonal changes, events or images. On the east coast of New Zealand, the Pleiades, the Hyades, Orion's belt and sword create one version of the waka of Tamarerity, the canoe of Tamarerity. The Pleiades form the carved prow, the Hyades the sail, the belt and sword form the stern and stern post. As they rise out of the ocean, they resemble a waka. This was the canoe that in Māori mythology, Tamarerity used to sail across the heavens placing Nafitu, the stars, into the sky. As he sailed across the heavens, the wake of the waka formed Te Ikaroa, the Milky Way. At this time of the year, the Southern Cross is at its lowest in the evening sky, skirting our Southern horizon. Akana is at its highest with the two Magellanic clouds, well placed for viewing. November sees an increase in meteor activity with the Taurus meteor shower early in November. 
and the more interesting shower the Lian insulator. Meteors or shooting stars were once thought to be a meteorological event, gases self-igniting in the Earth's atmosphere. Today we know they are associated with the debris from comets and other objects in our solar system. As the debris enters the Earth's atmosphere, it ablates, forming a meteor. Meteors are broken into two groups, random and shower. Random meteors appear from any part of the sky or any direction of the sky and at any time. Showers happen at certain times of the year and a number of meteors will be seen radiating away from a region of the sky for a number of days or occasionally weeks. Showers tend to build up to a peak and then fade away. The Leonid shower is associated with the comet Temple Tuttle. The radiant point of the shower is within the sickle of Leo the Lion. Being low on our horizon in New Zealand, we will not see this shower at its best, seeing only 30% of the number of those seen further north. It is best to observe them with a good northern horizon and a clear dark sky. This year we will have the added complication of a near full moon that may wash out some of the fainter meteors. This shower can vary greatly in the number of meteors seen each year and they can also leave faint to bright trails behind them, so it's worthwhile getting up in the early morning to observe. If you do get up early in the morning, you may spot Venus and Saturn rising in the east in the twilight and possibly, in binoculars, a comet. Jupiter is due north in the evening sky at the start of the month and well placed for observing with binoculars or telescopes. Uranus is still nearby but the two are slowly separating. As both are now past opposition, they will get fainter as their distance from Earth increases. Comet Hartley 2 will be in our sky over the next few weeks and visible in binoculars and telescopes. At its brightest during the last two weeks of October, it was low down in the north in our morning sky. It is now climbing higher in our sky and moves into the constellation of Canis Major in the first week of November and will be near Procyon on the 6th. As the comet moves higher in our sky, it will become fainter as it is moving away from the sun. Venus will be in the morning sky, climbing higher during the month. Mercury and Mars will appear low on our western horizon in the evening sky. We wish you all a good month of stargazing and look forward to talking to you again next month. John Field signing off from the Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Thanks for that, John. And now we go on to the bit of the show where we talk about all the random odds and ends. So first up, I've got an article that was on the NASA website that was called Dead Spacecraft Walking, and I thought it was kind of appropriate because it was Halloween a few days ago. So this is about... um, a pair of NASA spacecraft that were supposed to be dead about a year ago, but instead they are being given a new life um, going to going to the moon. So these are two spacecraft from the Themis mission, which is Time History of Events and Macroscale Interactions During Substorms. I really do think that NASA come up with that the best acronyms. And this really. isn't to be confused with the Themis um instrument on the Mars Odyssey mission, which I think Megan talked about in the August news. So this Themis was a fleet of five spacecraft that were um, going around the Earth in the Earth's magnetosphere to study the physics of geomagnetic storms. Um, And these two spacecraft that are now going to the moon were Themis P1 and P2, which were the outermost of the five spacecraft. And these spacecraft um, got their energy from the sun. And obviously, while you're going around around the Earth, you're going to be shielded by the Earth, so you're not going to see the sun some of the time. And as the orbits evolved, it turned out that P1 and P2 were spending too much time in the Earth's shadow to actually get enough energy to keep going. So when they realised that these two spacecraft were basically going to die, they thought, why not send them to the moon? As you do, they had enough fuel to go there. 
And you can get some interesting um, information from the moon because if the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, you can see how the charged particles from the sun interact with an actual rocky surface if you don't have that atmosphere there to protect you like the Earth does. So they renamed these two spacecraft Artemis, which stands for Acceleration, Reconnection, Turbulence and Electrodynamics of the Moon's Interaction with the Sun. Another <laughs> Again, <good> well <laughs> done, NASA. Awesome. I'm impressed with that. And the two spacecraft have got to the Moon and they're actually orbiting in two of the Lagrange points in the Earth-Moon system. So Lagrange points are points in, if something's in between two bodies, uh, there will actually be five points where the orbits are kind of stationary. So this has been utilised a lot in the Earth-Sun system and spacecraft like Planck and Herschel are orbiting at L2 in the Earth-Sun system. So basically in, in L2, say where Planck is, it's on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun. So you would normally expect it to be orbiting around the Sun in a longer period of time than the Earth takes. But then the extra pull of the Earth's gravity actually pulls it into a um, shorter orbit and that means that at L2, Planck is orbiting at the same rate as the Earth, so the Earth is always in between Planck and the Sun, so it never gets any sunlight, which is really good, because Planck needs to be operating at really um, cold temperatures. So Artemis P1 and P2 are in the L1 and L2 parts of the Moon-Earth system, and I don't think any spacecraft have actually been here before, so it's quite exciting for that reason. And there's quite a lot of science that Artemis is actually going to do. I've got a feeling this is going to be the kind of mission that just evolves as it goes on because it's a complete bonus for NASA. You know, they weren't expecting this. So hopefully a lot of good science will come out of that. At the time of recording, the Space Shuttle Discovery is just about to undergo its final mission. And the really thing, really cool thing about this mission is it's taking a humanoid ro- robot, Robonaut 2, into space. I think that's so cool. It's, I didn't realise that they actually had robot astronauts. Well, I want to know what happened to Robonaut 1. <laughs> so, yeah, well, you, you can follow Robonaut 2 on Twitter. He's um, Astro Robonaut. So I'm not quite sure whether the robot's actually tweeting. I assume that someone is tweeting on their behalf. Is it humanoid looking? Kind it of. Arms and legs it's and got there's, the picture on the website shows it um, cr- like using dumbbells. Oh, wow. Like wow. lifting weights. How That's big is cool. it? Is it little or is it... There wasn't a picture um, to scale with human, but I guess it's about human size and it's kind of humanoid looking, although there was another picture of one that was like the torso and head, but then it was on a kind of like Mars Rover style, like wheels cool. and stuff. <laughs> but I don't know. I didn't really look at the website too much, so I don't know whether those are real or the future. And on November 2nd, it's the 10th anniversary of people living permanently on the International Space Station. The exact time of the anniversary will be 21 minutes past five in the morning on November the 2nd. I assume that's universal time. I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Well, some point on November the 2nd, and the station will have completed 57,361 orbits of the Earth, travelling a distance of 1.5 billion miles. That's crazy. Ridiculously far. Yeah. I think that we sometimes forget how amazing it is to actually have people living permanently in space. It's so cool. I know. I really <laughs> want to go up there. Yeah. I'm too short to be a NASA astronaut. It really. I thought that they'd want short people. I, I'm sure I've <laughs> ranted. to carry up. Yeah, I thought, I, I'm sure I've ranted about this before on the podcast, but you have to be a very specific height and I'm too short. What oh, a shame. Am I, am I the only one of the three of us around this I table I think you might be enough? too tall. Oh. There's a very specific, <laughs> there's very specific height and weight um, regulations to be an astronaut. Unfortunately. Well, there was when I went to the Kennedy Space Centre 10 years ago. They might have changed it since then. So when people first started going on the International Space Station, 
you were too short to be an astronaut. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've grown since. I have. Maybe. Maybe. And now we get on to the part of the show where we talk about your feedback. So, Libby, I think you've got emails. What have we got? Yes, we have emails from Artemy and Dominic and also from Jim Pryor. So, in response to us talking too fast, he says, you're doing fine, talk faster, you can cram more in. See, I like that logic, but (laughs) I don't think anyone else would appreciate that. We could try some speed talking and see what people think. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> On the forum, thanks to Andy, HMW, Earth Unit and Solar Crescent for your comments about the October Extra show. It's been a very good thread on the forum for October Extra. HMW was also wondering if we could do a, a day in the life episode. So a day in the life of Tim or the day in the life of Jen or something like that. Um, unfortunately, our day-to-day lives are actually quite boring. We just sit in front of computers all day, either writing code or analysing data. It doesn't make a very good audio episode. But we were thinking of maybe doing a video. And the other idea we've had is to do an observing diary. So when someone goes off to a telescope somewhere exotic, they could take a recorder and record what they're doing. We tried to do this with Dave Jones when he went to La Palma earlier this year, but unfortunately it was too cloudy or too windy or something for him to actually do observing. Yeah, it was bad weather conditions. Yeah. But Adam, I guess as part of your new job, you might get to go to Alma. I hope so. Hopefully. Yeah. So we could definitely get something out of that. Yeah, and do that. The problem is, is that now, these days, a lot of telescope scheduling, you don't actually get to go. So in the good old days, you would be given, you know, three nights if it was an optical telescope or so many hours on a radio telescope. And you would go there and if the conditions were bad, that was too bad, as Dave discovered. Yeah. But these days, it's a lot more dynamic scheduling. So just someone at the observatory will do your observations for you and they will pick, you know, they have a big pile of observations and depending on the conditions, they'll do the ones that need the good conditions or they'll do the ones that can be done with a little bit of cloud and things like that. So unfortunately, not too much opportunities to go to telescopes these days. Boo. Boo, indeed. Also on the forum, welcome to all of our new members. And Mr Moat was wondering about having... A little change of format for the extra shows so that it was at a slightly more basic level. And he said, As a non scientist, many of the terms and concepts used in the Jogcast go over my head completely, or I don't understand their wider implications. More background coverage would be helpful. Um, Stuart on the forum suggested what I was going to suggest, which is Astronomy Cast, which is a podcast done by a couple of people in America. And they cover their shows are just about one subject and they talk about it and they explain things. So I think that's a really good place to go if you want a more background level um, podcast. And that's at astronomycast.com. Earth Unit also reminded us that a while ago, an abbreviations and acronyms thread was started on the forum. So if we ever talk about random acronyms like Themis and things like that, which are so convoluted, um, you can go on the forum. And if it's not in there, you can always just ask us and we love to help out. We haven't had anything on Facebook this month, but on Twitter, thanks to everyone for their comments on the new site design. Oh yeah, we should have mentioned that, shouldn't we? We've got a brand new website design. And it looks really cool. Stuart's outdone himself. Stuart spent quite a while on it and it looks really good. So if you don't normally go on the website, go on and check it out. And there's a photo of a few of us from Job Pub on there as well, if you want to stalk (laughs) us slightly. Um, Also, there has been a new Twitter-based hashtag under the name HashJodPick with photos of people wearing their Jogcast t-shirts in random places. So far, we've only had Mark and Jen. We've had Mark at the Parks Radio Telescope and Jen at the Pyramids, which are two cool locations. Yeah, um, we start, We I got bored the other day and thought it would be cool to put pictures on Twitter of people wearing Jogcast t-shirts in random places. So if you do have 
a Jogcast t-shirt. I know we sold some of them at Jogcast Live and they were available in the visitor centre for us. If you've got one and you're going somewhere exotic or somewhere strange, take a picture and put it on Twitter. We might even start a page on the website for it. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jogcast. On Facebook at jogcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jogcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. So thank you to Yvonne Ellsworth for being interviewed. In the intro-outro, Richard Casto was Father Dougal, Perry Whittle was Father Ted, Dave MacGyver was Father Jack, and Fiona Thrale was Mrs Doyle. The intro-outro was written by David Alt from a suggestion by Fiona Thrale, and it was edited by Fiona Thrale. The other editors for this show were Adam Averson, Claire Bretheron, Mark Perver, and Chris Tibbs. Until next time, jod on. Bye. Bye-bye. So, Ted, what do you think? Well, Dougal, I don't know. It sounds a bit too good to be true. I'm going to send another pigeon for the next issue. Maybe we should think about getting the Internet over here instead if you're going to do this every two weeks. Oh, great. Then I can look at the show notes and everything. Well, let's have some tea. Mrs. Doyle, would you... I already have it, Father. Well, can I have the tea that doesn't have Father Jack in? Telescope. Jodrell Bank. Black Hole. Jodcast. Well, that's impossible. How can he be in both teapots? I'll send a pigeon to the Jodcast. They answer things like that. No, don't bother. I'm going to the pub instead. But, Ted, it's midday. The sun's shining. Not anymore, Dougal. Look at the twinkling stars.